Welcome to Asian Voices Radio Podcast, where you'll find real Asian American conversations, including those topics you were too afraid to ask your Asian parents. I'm your host, Rasha Goel, and our special guest joining us today is an award-winning actor and director who has quickly risen to be a top player in television and film. He has worked with Academy Award-winning director Clint Eastwood, along with Michael Bay, with pivotal roles in over three dozen TV shows and films, including Hawaii Five-0, The Man in the High Castle, Letters from Iwo Jima, Transformers, Rampage, and Wedding Crashers, and there's so much more that I could go on with. It's my pleasure to have Arnold Chun on Asian Voices Radio. Arnold, welcome to our show. How are you today? Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and a privilege, and uh, I couldn't be more grateful and happier uh, in this season of life as a father, husband, and as an individual. Well, we're excited, and I know you've got your hands quite full, so we're happy that you were able to carve out some time for us. Now, you're a Korean-American born in Boston, Massachusetts, but you were raised in Los Angeles since you were a kid. So talk to me a little bit about what it was growing up as Asian-American. I understand your parents were also immigrants from Korea. Yeah, that's correct. Um, 1976, that's my birthday. I hope I'm not aging myself, but people can do the math. (laughs) I came to Los Angeles when I was two years old. My father got a job out here. Uh, San Fernando Valley is my old stomping grounds, you know, kind of the park within hell. That's kind of where I grew up. Yeah, and um, been here pretty much now going on 44 years of life. Uh, You know, the San Fernando Valley was just um, a great experience. I live in Torrance currently at the moment with my family, Um, but I love the San Fernando Valley just because of the plethora of diversity that I had around me. I was very thankful and um, I believe privileged to grow up with so many different kinds of people. Um, for ex- example, my high school, uh, whites and Asians, we were the minority. My high school was 50% African American and 30% Latino American, and everybody else was minority. So it um, provided a very multicultural environment for the most part, and that we've got to see all different kinds of stories. And especially in the time that we grew up, for myself, um, 1992, as everybody knows, was the LA riots, and so um, that was a very polarizing time, much similar to the times that we're living in now, uh, but something that really formulatively, definitively shaped my view of the world going forward as a young adult, or actually as a teen, and then going into my young adult years, but, um, you know, the Valley was a great place growing up as a kid, because, again, not only the diversity, but uh, just the plethora of sports, and, you know, just the malls, come on, it's hot in the valley, so what do we do? We hung out in the malls all the time, you know, talking about what girl we want to take to the prom, what girl we saw, <laughs> everybody hangs out in Orchard Falls, like the communal place. Um, but yeah, I was very, very fond of those memories and those times. And I, you know, I was very fortunate to grow up in a community where I went with all my friends to the same elementary school, to the same junior high school, to the same high school. So oh, there's all the you? stories. Yeah, there's all the stories, the first crushes, the name, you know, calling that you got for <laughs> different life stages, all the sports rivalries with the different high schools and the different players that you knew, you know, growing up in that circle. It was a really, really fun time. I look back at that and I'm like, man, I, I, re- I really wish for that for my children because I think it pr- um, uh, is conducive for just like a, a very tight knit and sort of like camaraderie of nostalgia when you think about you know, the people and um, when it comes to pop culture and all the different things that you experience uh, with your friends, it's something that really lasts and stays with you. And 
the fact that I still have those friends after, you know, 35 years, it's something to be said of. It's, it's a very, very unique wow. thing. That's yeah. pretty incredible, Arnold. And thanks for sharing that because I'm in the San Fernando Valley now. So I'm making memories now, but it's very rare to have people where they have been in one area from elementary all the way throughout high school. So that that's pretty incredible, quite impressive. Um, now, Part of it probably think- because we were like, go oh, ahead. No, go ahead. What were you going to say? Uh, I said part of it probably because um, we couldn't move out and get something else because we didn't have more money. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but you created great memories, right? And I think those relationships yeah, yeah. are probably so because yes. I are worthy of treasure because I moved all across the U.S. So there wasn't a single place I really stayed in for too many years because uh, of my dad's job. But going back to you now in the late 90s, this is so fascinating to me. You went back to Japan and taught English. I know that there's still a big demand for that now, too, um, and, and in East Asia, including Korea. So what was that experience like for you? And why Japan and not Korea? Because you are Korean. I studied European and East Asian history in college, and believe it or not, my endeavor was actually to become an educator. I wanted to be a teacher. So right after college, um, there were several different programs that I'd heard about while I was in college uh, that you could make money overseas uh, teaching English. And so the JET exchange, I mean, I'm sorry, the Japan exchange uh, teaching programs called JET it was one of the most uh, prestigious as well as well-funded programs by the Japanese government. And as a U.S. citizen, you could work overseas uh, 10 months out of the year tax-free. And because of the diplomatic relationship that is, exists between Japan and uh, the U.S., they don't tax you as citizens at the time. I don't know if it changed. I mean, it's probably you know, 20 years ago. But uh, that was a great opportunity to go there and then also pay off some of my college loans that I incurred from going to you know, university. Uh, so it was kind of a no-brainer. Um, looking at that program. I did look at some other programs, namely there are, you know, teaching opportunities in Europe and as well as Korea, but it didn't honestly pay as well. So it was kind of a motivating factor to go uh, to Japan. As we, looking back on it, going full circle, it's kind of interesting that when I decided to go into the entertainment industry and namely Man in the High Castle, what I actually studied in college was actually very applicable to playing the role and being in a series that talked about what if the U.S. lost the war and the world was run by Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. I don't know how you could uh, roll the dice and say that was by chance. I, I think it was fate that it was meant to be in that way. And so it was very striking that a lot of the conversations and the topic and the narratives and the things that we discussed on the show were directly things that I studied in college. Uh, talk about a payoff, right? That uh, yeah. you didn't see coming. I mean, so. even the irony, you don't really hear these kind of stories often. So that's pretty fascinating. It's almost like you were getting prepped for something else that you were to do in the future, right? That I had no idea of. Yeah. I, I, I you couldn't have said it more succinctly. Um, you know, going back to the other part of your question, why Japan? I've always had a fascination with the, that country. Um, and unfortunately, because of the history between Korea and Japan growing up as a kid, you know, my father actually lost his father to the Japanese during the occupation, 1910 to 1945. And, um, you know, Pachinko actually right now is quite uh, a discussion of topic when it comes to that time period because it portrays uh, what the Japanese had, you know, uh, done in that country at that time, as well as obviously the the narrative of the family and having a having a 
a sort of kinship between Japan and Korea as like Japanese Koreans and so, or Korean Japanese so forth. Um, but to get back to that, yeah, my father uh, unfortunately had a you know a really traumatic experience uh, with that country, and so we grew up with like. You can't buy Sony TV. You can't buy Honda. You can't buy Toyota. You can't go and you know buy Nintendo. I mean, it was really, really stark with my family in that sense. And probably a lot of other Korean Americans, second generation Korean Americans, if you ask them that, uh, their parents had very similar experiences. So probably you know ended up putting their children in that same kind of boycott. <laughs> can't buy right. Japanese stuff. Can't really engage in that. But uh, obviously for us, um, you know, it was not as uh, strict in, in terms of our our ethic compass or moral compass, if you want to call it that. So I I just said you know I, I think there's a lot to gain by actually going there and experiencing the culture, experiencing the people myself, and I've made some incredible friends from that, and I've learned a great deal about that country and those people, and I think that it just led for a broader perspective as an Asian American in this country. You know, I love that Arnold. Thank you for sharing that because those are some things that. People from different communities like myself, we've not experienced that, especially between the two countries. I mean, India, Pakistan, is they have their own rivalry there. But to even hear about your upbringing, I have to jump into your acting career because your story is so phenomenal to me. So you did not pursue acting, you know, it in college or even prior to that. You actually I teaching and then engineering as well. You're in a completely different field. You show up as a P.A., on a film set. And then from there you decide, Hey, I want to work in this business. Tell me about this story, how it started to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I never did any drama as a kid. I was not involved in school plays. I didn't go into high school drama. I didn't do any of those sort of, uh, you know, dramatic narrative stage readings or anything like that. Um, I never had any friends that were in it. And I didn't have any community uh, people around me that were in it. I never even really went to the theater. Um, I went to movies as, as a kid with my father all the time. In fact, that was probably one of the biggest sort of uh, father-son connection moments that um, I had growing up is my dad always took me to the movies. But it never translated into wanting to be an actor or a filmmaker. I, for me, it was just entertainment, bonding time with my father. And it... It really is still to this day uh, sort of an anomaly of like how I got into this. And I can only say by the grace of God, I think that's kind of what led me there. Um, like, like you said, after I finished college, I went to Japan, I came back. I was waiting tables just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And so, you know, going to Japan and having that experience confirmed I didn't want to be a teacher. So I got a headhunter, found a recruiter, and just started applying to regular jobs. And so my first job was at Enterprise Rent-A-Car. I did that for about a year, and then from there, transitioned with my headhunter getting me a different opportunity into a mechanical engineering consulting firm, and was doing consulting for them for three years, from 2001 to 2003. I left that job to go take another opportunity at in the pharmaceutical industry, GSK, because I was kind of bored with the, with the engineering side, and a friend of mine who knew the gentleman named Eric Kim, who was working for Madonna's company, Maverick, at the time, they were making a very small independent movie. This was like 2003 of October. And she had contacted me saying, hey, I've got my friend Eric doing this film. They need a bunch of volunteers to come out and help to kind of shorthand it. So I said, yeah, I've never been on a film set. Um, well, what do you need? He's like, you know, show up on this date at this address at this time and meet Eric. He'll tell you what, you know, what's going on and what the deal is. 
That's actually the first time I met Sung Kang, the actor. Uh, he was doing it independent at that time. He was the lead of that thing. Uh, Gene wow. Rhee, who was the director of that entire set, I actually still go to church with him. It's kind of funny, 12, you know, whatever, 14 years later. Um, it turned into, you know, four days of volunteering on that set. I was literally a kid at a candy store. My goodness, this, the things that I saw on a, fill, on a, on a full budget like film set, it, it was just amazing. I had never experienced that. I think probably the closest thing was taking the tram tour at Universal Studios in the back lot, you know, going through that whole thing. And that's not even the real experience. That's just kind of showing you the, you know, the sets that have been used. But this was kind of very hands-on. And I think right away when, the, when Eric saw that, uh, he had talked to his partner. He's like, dude, I think you, you got to hire this person. He didn't tell me directly, but I think that's what they were thinking. So that kind of translated into him offering me a job to come and work at the company and learn. And, of course, you know, that was a really big shift in a different direction. Granted, I had, you know, a six-figure job lined up. Obviously, my parents were like, what are you doing? Are you crazy? <laughs> what, are, you, are you sure about this? You lost and your mind. And 19 years later, yeah, 19 years later, I, I can't say anything, but then it was fate. It was meant to be because here I am now, you know, a working professional in the industry. And I look back at that, and every step of the way, I can't help but admit the things that have transpired that, you know, positioned me to get to the next thing and as well as the hard work because going from a nine to five into a, a world of artistry and a world of independent contracting and kind of being uh, your own boss it's not easy I mean I can't tell you how many times I had to borrow money from friends borrow money from family borrow money from credit cards bounce checks bounce missed payments I mean it was just a cyclone ninja you know Goliath roller coaster at Magic Mountain of a journey and I'm really thankful for those times, the valleys, especially the deep valleys, because I think there was a lot of um, reformation that was happening in my life and my persona and my mental health, and my, my you know, identity as a person in order to understand what it means to be an artist and how hard it is and how um, diligent you have to be at it with your craft. And so that was kind of the the route that kind of transpired the door that opened for me in getting to this. And I never would have expected it to happen. So it's kind of always mind boggling to me when I think about what, what, what happened to lead me to get to this place. It's kind of crazy. What an incredible journey. I mean, again, it's not your typical route. What, you know, as I was listening to you, I kept thinking about what inspired you to keep going because there could be a moment when those bounce checks happen or the money wasn't coming in, like you said, you were set for a six figure salary job and you decided to take this risk. So even in those moments of despair, what kept you going, Arnold? I have to say I've always been a go-getter and I've always been a self-motivated person um, in anything that I did. And, you know, I left everything to do this. I told myself if I'm going to pursue this and I'm going to make a living at it, I'm going to put everything I've got into it. And I didn't wait tables. I didn't bartend. I didn't sell real estate. I didn't go and do odd jobs on the side. I tried to figure out how to make my entire living in the entertainment industry. So, you know, learning every facet of it became, you know, so much knowledge to just absorb. There was just so much to learn. And there was just an unending, you know, plethora of it available. It's, it's not like you can ever master it. And that's why when you see people that win the Oscar or Golden Globe or Emmy, it's always somebody different because a different artist comes with something else um, to you know, garner that uh, accolade. And so for me, I 
you know, became intrigued with, you know, the first part of it is sort of the production side, learning how do you actually manufacture and make content. And from the beginning of writing a script to a concept, to outlining it, to treatment, to getting writers, to getting funding, to getting producers, to getting locations, to get all the different things that come in line to put that together. It's a lot like project management. And that's something that I really actually um, am attracted to as a person, uh, you know, in that setting of doing something different all the time. And the challenges and obstacles that come with that are always different. It's never the same. You always run into very different kinds of scenarios that you have to tackle and uh, find solutions to. So I think for me, as an individual, my personality, I kind of am attracted to that sort of work. Uh, granted, it's a lot different because you don't go into an office per se. You're kind of either working from home or oftentimes working out in the field or you know, oftentimes working at somebody else's uh, residence or office collaborating together. Um, but I think for me, it was really all about figuring out how to survive. And yes, I moved back home and you know stayed with my parents for as long as I could. And they were very supportive of that. And even through the times that were difficult and the times where I felt the most low, even in my mental health, I'm very thankful for my parents that they continued to encourage me and, you know, they have always raised me to be a hard worker, to put my mind to it, put every effort that I have into what I'm doing. And at the same time, uh, recognizing that I'm not just working for myself, I'm working for, you know, my future and my community and my family. And I think those things, you know, became more evident as I began to grow more in the entertainment industry. You get to, you know, have an exposure of how the world actually works. And media is a very powerful tool, as we all know, the things that it can do, the way it shapes, you know, our vision of the world or our perception of the world at a formative age. And the reason why it's so important to have diversity, I don't want to, you know, change topics too fast, but it's all related to that, was you become more aware about how these things affect people, affect society, affect culture, affect our world, affect our communities, our neighborhoods, government, politics, all of that, it became more indicative that I need to participate and I need to create content and I need to be a representative of my community and a voice in order to not only inspire the next generation, but to evoke change right here and now in what we're doing at this very moment. So those became very big driving factors for me on top of obviously trying to survive in my pursuit of the entertainment industry. And I think that um, I have still a long way to go. I'm not, nowhere near <laughs> where I would like to be. Well, I think as artists, we always want to continue creating, right? And, and making more content and, and more projects and impact. I'm going to jump to what you were talking about as far as creating impact and, and doing it for the community. Let's talk about representation, especially for Asian Americans. Having been in the industry for a while now, have you seen a change within five to 10 years when it comes to Asian American actors? And what do you think that we can do to be a part of that change? How can we improve the situation? I do think there has been a lot of change. And I think we're seeing it right now with the plethora of content coming out on the streaming platforms that are so diversified than ever before. And the fact that more and more companies and studios in the entertainment industry are looking for that type of content for representation and to continually increase their audience base and giving the audience a much wider plethora of choices to view. And I, I think those are all great because what it does, number one, it creates more homegrown talent for all of those individual global territories around the world. Um, because more of those people now have opportunities to become local stars or local, um, you know, visible uh, characters and personalities in their home markets. And then also to be viewed on a world stage because 
everybody has the ability to go on and watch something, whether it's Hulu, Roku, or you know Disney Plus. So many you name it, all of the different platforms that are there. We're so much more connected than before. Yeah, there's I don't know. There's probably two hundred fifty <laughs> to three hundred. Can't even remember all of them, ones. I can't name them all, but there's there's so many. Um, HBO Max, all that. I, mean, I don't want to sit there and name drop, but I think you understand what I'm saying. I think that um, we're seeing an incredible explosion of change that's happening. But at the same time, I think what needs to continue to happen is a sort of reflection about that representation when it comes to Asian Americans in particular. Um, because if you look at the things that are getting notoriety, whether it's Squid Game, whether it's Minari, or whether it's um, Parasite, you know, those those things are really incredible for what they've accomplished in the note of getting a Golden Globe or an Emmy or an Oscar or a SAG Award and those kinds of things. But from the community of actors that I know here as Asian Americans, there is the discussion oftentimes of like, I don't know how I actually can re relate to those people because yes, they are Asian, but they're not Asian American. And so there's a small, a small part that, you know, sort of, creates a disconnect in that, yes, they are faces like us, but they don't grow up in the same sort of social environment as us. And so they don't experience maybe some of the same uh, discrimination, stereotypes, um, racism, and, you know, sort of uh, difficulties when it comes to hiring for particular jobs as we do. And I, I think that's a discussion that will continue to be ongoing, you know, as we continue to look at this and seeing like what the studios are doing in, in, um, in comparison to what they're doing for stories that are Asian American specific. But overall, I think the change has been happening for sure. Um, but I think that we as an Asian American community need to be um, much more embracing of our own filmmakers, our own actors and our own producers and our own community members that work on the other side, with, which is at the studio or at the agencies or at the management companies that have very big positions of power and to be able to see if they would be uh, people that step out to help create more Asian American content that is very relatable to us here. You know, it's one thing where, you know, uh, there used to be this stigma that nobody wants to watch anything with subtitles because yeah. people are lazy and it takes time to read that. And God bless Netflix and all the other platforms out there that have kind of broken that down, the Amazon Primes, where everything is now subtitled. Even the English is subtitled. You watch something that's just a regular American programming, there's, you know, regular subtitles on it. But I think that's also, you know, paving the way for, uh, again, more diverse content to come through. But I'd like to see just much more stories that are representative of us, because if we look at the history of our community, it's not like we've just been here for the last 20 years or the last 40 years. You know, there is almost a century of us as Americans, just of Asian descent, that have contributed to the fabric of this country's yes. history. And I think that if we look at the people that are um, accomplished in our community, the things that have happened, it's interesting that we don't have a lot of stories about them that can then inspire the younger generation to see these are heroes of our community that are American, that are have our faces that represent us. And I'm not trying to take away from the Lee Jung-jae and the Lee Byung-huns and all the other different um, Hiroyuki Sanadas and Ken Watanabe's are all great Asian actors that come here. But oftentimes I wondered, what do they do in reaping the benefits of coming here 
and gaining such a social media uh, uh, um, presence or you know just a publicity presence, how do they contribute to the betterment of us as far as our community while you know America goes and buys tickets and watches them on screen? And, and look, it's I don't think it's just limited to Asian American act. I mean, Asian actors that come here to America. I mean, the same thing could be said about okay, all of the British actors that come here, all of the actors from Europe that come here. They become stars. They become notoriable. They become uh, really recognizable. How do they contribute to the fabric of America? You know, how do they contribute to the fabric of the expansion of diversity in cinema for Americans in a, as a whole? And I know that might be, you know, it's a time for another um, another topic for discussion another time. But these are kind of things I, I think about a lot. But as far as um, Asian American actors, I think there are more faces that we can see and relate to. And I think that is just an incredible, incredible uh, movement going forward for the younger generation that they can see this is a career that is possible. It is not as difficult as it was maybe, you know, 20, 40 years ago, where the guys that I grew up watching, you know, a lot of those guys did not have any of the opportunities that we're seeing now. And myself in my mid-40s, it's also sort of a, a juxtaposition because there's a plethora of change that's happening and there's more opportunities to read for different roles that I've never got to read for before when I was coming up in my late 20s and my early 30s. But now it's competing with an international group of people for that same role that's opened up. So it's a very different, different experience of an Asian American actor now, whereas the younger actors, I think, it's amazing they have so many great opportunities and I would really encourage them to train and train and train and learn as much as they can about the artistry of cinema and the artistry of acting because it only helps them to become much more uh, successful down the road. Because becoming a filmmaker or becoming an actor isn't just like, oh, I'm going to try it for like two years and that's it or three years. If you decide to do this, Put a thousand percent into it. Make this your entire career that you do not want to change because we need those kinds of people. We need those kinds of people that do it for the long haul that actually then make strides and gain accolades and advance in their career to become the people that open up the doors for the next generation. If we have too much turnover, it really doesn't actually help us going forward. It only kind of just pushes the reset button like waiting for the next person that's going to kind of get there. Um, I hope I answered the question. No, you did. And I, there, gosh, I only have a few minutes left and I really wanted to respond to that because, you know, I had spoken to George Takai a few months ago and like people like him, like his stories need to be shared from just what he's experienced too, you know, to open up the doors for Asian Americans as well. But I want to ask you, because you mentioned the roles and the opportunities. Now you've also played a lot of characters that were Japanese and you're Korean, so I'm curious to know, is that because of the opportunities in the casting process, or was that by personal choice? In the beginning, when I started to see that happening more uh, more often, it, it definitely was because of the rules that were available. Um, there just wasn't as much Korean content, uh, aside from you know playing a North Korean character, uh, really available, like in my late 20s and early 30s. And I'd say in the last five to seven years, I've seen that change. I mean, there's been a lot more that has been opened up where now they're considering someone that looks like me for just any, any kind of role instead of just like specifically, you know, an Asian person. And I think that's an indication of how much change that has occurred. 
Um, but specifically Japanese, I think the problem, you know, or the phenomenon in our industry is that once you do something really well, it's easy for the people that cast or the people that, you know, produce to reference like, oh, we got to get that guy. He was so great in this role. Like, I think he'd be perfect for this role, this other, you know, Japanese character, whatever it is. And yeah, a lot of times, some of it is aesthetics. Um, oftentimes I get that, like, they don't think I look Korean. They think I look Japanese or Chinese. So, I mean, I don't know what to do about that other than maybe get plastic surgery. <laughs> so, um, you know, there is, there's, that's a component of it. But at the same time, um, you know, there's the other side where, yeah, it, it's, it's changing. It is getting better and it is becoming more um, common that it's not just a specific, like, you have to be Japanese or Korean. They're allowing you to just be pan-Asian is what they call it. Um, but there are obviously certain things that, like, well, if it's a period piece and it's a specific cultural piece that you have to be Japanese. But I really advocate for, you know, actors' jobs are to transform. I mean, you look at Tom Cruise playing in Valkyrie. He's not German, and if, he didn't even do a German accent. He was playing an American, basically with an American accent, as a German character. And I felt like, well, couldn't we do the same thing then? Like, why do we have to yes. play this with an Asian accent? It, I feel like sometimes that double standard is still there, but um, I think that's something that we still have to work on. But when it comes to um, yeah, myself, uh, I do ask that question a lot. Like, why don't I keep playing these Japanese roles? I think I'd like to do something that's not specifically Japanese. But, um, <laughs> I mean, if you're good at something, you do it. You know, Sylvester Stallone said something really great on, I think it was either Jimmy Kimmel when he was asked or, or it might have been um, Jimmy Fallon. He was he was asked about, you know, when uh, he auditioned for Star Wars way back in the day. And obviously Harrison Ford got it. But he said right away, like, to his agent, you know, honestly, this in a tight suit for space, no, that's just not going to work. It's not you're, – you're just, you're just not going up the right tree. And I think he told casting, like, listen, uh, you know, you, you don't want this. Like, this is just – come on. Me and tights with a ray gun, it's not going to work. And he said, what, what you're good at and what you are able to book, that's what you make your money on. He said, you stick to what you know. So there's some truth of that, uh, I'd say. But at the same time, I, I like to obviously break stereotypes and break boundaries and, you know, um, explore. And that's our job and that's what we're called to do. And I totally advocate for that. But at the same time, if you know that this is something that I think gives you consistent work day in and day out, I mean, you can't turn that down. It's hard. No, of course. I think it's. It's finding that balance, Arnold. And I think that's a tricky part because as we are in this market right now, trying to move past those stereotypes, right? Where this, it's a very, very interesting intersection that we're at right now because we have this moment to really start being vocal, I feel, as Asian Americans for, like you said, for the stories that need to be told, that need to be shared. But at the same time, it's also having Hollywood understand what exactly does that mean? What do we represent? And yeah, you're great at doing that fine, let's get the money made and book that. But then what other opportunities can be created, you know, as an actor and filmmaker? I'm afraid I have to wrap up. I, I wanted to talk to you so much more. Um, Arnold Chun, actor and filmmaker, um, also making a lot of creative stuff out there. But tell us how people can follow you and um, your work on social media. So obviously, Instagram, I'm Arnold H. Chun. And, uh, you know, on Facebook, Arnold Chun. 
Uh, I don't really do a whole lot of other social media platforms aside from that. I mean, I'm still trying to understand and learn TikTok, really, to be honest. It's kind of a food phenomenon for me. Um, but uh, generally, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm in different things here and there. So you can always Google me, Arnold Chen, and you can see all the stuff that I'm involved in. But, um, you know, and Arnold, it's a, you have three kids, too. I don't think you have time to be on TikTok, but um, that's a whole tough. different discussion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is like my seven year old, four year old, and two year old, they take up so much of my time. And, and, you know, it's really difficult to honestly focus on like putting myself out there. And, you know, I try to let my work speak for that in, in that sense. And right. people who know me, they do follow and find and look up and dig out and see what I'm up to next. But the, the most recent thing that I've been working on are two different projects. One is a story about a Korean American family that finds redemption and forgiveness through black gospel music. And the other one is about a, a, a true life crime story that happened in 2014 with a Korean American family that found themselves in a dispute over the inheritance of a multi-million dollar family estate and turned into homicide. So I'm working on those two projects currently as a director and you know, you'll be able to see those when they, when they come out. Hopefully. Oh, I'm excited. And I'll be looking out for those. Thank you for sharing that with us. Very like, I don't, the storyline just sounds so intriguing to me. So definitely we'll be looking out for those. Arnold, thank you so much for joining us today again on Asian Voices Radio Podcast. Now, if you have any suggestions or questions for future guests or topics, we'd love to hear from you, our audience. So make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or everywhere, as well as follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Asian Voices Radio is produced by Asian Culture and Media Alliance, a nonprofit that empowers our API community with the voice through media arts. Now, if you'd like to support our programs or make a donation, please do visit us at AsianVoicesRadio.com. Thank you once again for listening. I'm your host, Rasha Goel. Join me next week for another exciting and thought-provoking Asian Voices Radio show. Until then, please be safe and take care. And thank you, Arnold Chun, for joining us.